there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before, and it's exciting. I get around James and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. I'm sure you've heard me say from time to time there's always a tender nerve behind the bull's eye. And I'll usually say that about, you know, it's kind of like the same thing that Schultz used to say when you pitch a rock over the fence, the dog that yelps is the one that got hit. So it's the same kind of idea. If you're one of the few who really wish to develop beyond what life requires, that tender nerve behind the bull's eye can be very helpful. Unfortunately, you really have to want to develop. And I mean really be sincere about it and genuine about it. In order to have that happen, you must have gotten a glimpse of what you're really like. And it would have to be more than a glimpse. You would have to see it again and again before you really start to value this work and value what it's going to cost you to do it. In other words, take into consideration second force. And second force is big with this work. And the reason second force is big with this work is because this work is big. And the reason this work is big is not because of Gurdjieff or Spensky or Nicole or anybody else. It is because of the ideas, the ideas that this work conveys. This work is built around ideas, basic, fundamental, esoteric ideas. And you'll find people defending, defending, defending this work and its system. I don't have time for that. I have no time to defend this work. This work, as far as I'm concerned, this work can be swept off the table. And the ideas, which are eternal, will build a new work around them. So that's not the work in and of itself is not important to me. What is important to me is the ideas that made this work happen. The ideas brought this work into manifestation. This work is a manifestation. The fourth way is a manifestation of eternal principles and ideas. Those are the things that are important. Those are what we always need to use as our foundation. We should always go back to that and then let the work be adjusted accordingly. Now, I know that's heresy to some people, but that's the way it is for me. And until that changes, that's the way it's going to have to be. Unfortunately for us, the only place fit for the reception of esoteric ideas is the intellectual center. We don't have anything else that these ideas can fall on. All we have is the intellectual center. And the intellectual center is a mess, but it's the least messy part of us. So that's, that's what we have to work with. It's like, it's not much, but it's something. These ideas must make their way to the emotional center where they belong and where they can begin the process of transforming us. I've talked to you about self-change and I've said, you know, this isn't really self-change. Self-change is when we begin to see what we are, what we have acquired, what we think we are. We start to begin to be objective to ourself, for ourself. So we can look at ourself a little bit more objectively and we can begin to see that this self, this thing that all of our feeling of I is in, who we call I, that that is not real, that it's imaginary, that it's acquired, that it is a hodgepodge, a collection of all kinds of attitudes, ideas, thoughts, associations that we picked up along the way from other people or from whatever, education, family, your bloodline, all of that stuff. It's all stuff we just picked up along the way but it's not real. And when we begin to see that about ourselves, I may as well be speaking Swahili to someone who has not observed themselves and seen some portion of this. This is just ridiculous jabber to someone who hasn't gotten a glimpse of it. 
The first conscious shock is given in the intellectual center, and it's given at the place where incoming impressions fall on the mind. There is a place, just like there is a door in a house, where people come in and out. Let's call the people coming in incoming impressions, and let's call the door that place in the mind where those impressions come in. Let's look at it that way. You're a house, and there's a place in your mind where impressions come in. That is the place where the first conscious shock needs to be given, that place in the intellectual center, because that's the only place where it can be given. If the work doesn't intervene here at the door, no transformation is possible. The work needs to become our guard at the door. The work is not our guard at the door now, but it needs to become the guard at the door where impressions are coming in, the work ideas have to have a phalanx so that the impressions that come in have to go through the work ideas. They can't just be allowed to fall any place. They have to be stopped at the door. They have to have their ID checked. They have to be frisked to make sure they're not carrying any weapons. They've got to be checked to make sure they don't have any alcohol on them. You know, the whole gamut of things. You've got to take their shoes off. It's just like going to the airport these days. Take your shoes off, take your belt off, take everything out of your pockets, put it all here, run it all through there. You have to walk through the metal detector. All your stuff has to go through x-ray. That's what it needs to be like for us. We need to have that kind of security at the door where impressions are coming in in the mind. We can't do that. We are not equipped for that, so we need to hire a security team. And that security team is the esoteric ideas of this work. They need to check everything coming through. You think, well, that's going to slow things down. That's going to make it impossible. You'll get used to it, just like people are getting used to the wait at the airport. And it's not all that difficult when you consider what's at risk. What's at risk is your life. What's at risk is, are you going to be transformed into a different order of being or not? Or you're going to die like a dog. That's what's at risk. Those are the stakes. Now, is it worth having the security team at the door to check incoming impressions and to make sure they go where they're directed? If your life is meaningless to you, then no, it's not worth it. But if your life has any meaning to you whatsoever, if this work has any meaning to you whatsoever, if it has any value to you whatsoever, if the idea of the possibility of your psychological transformation, evolution, has any meaning to you whatsoever, then you're going to want that security team at the door where incoming impressions are coming into the mind in the intellectual center. If the work doesn't intervene at this point, no transformation is possible, which means we stay the same. For a lot of people, that's okay. I'm good the way I am. I don't need to change. Other people need to change. Okay, then this work isn't for you now. This work may never be for you. That's okay too. This work is not for everybody. If everybody tried to escape prison all at once, the guards would notice and they would stop the prison break. If a few try and escape from prison, the guards may not notice and they may be able to get out. So in the interest of self-interest, it's okay with me that everybody doesn't want to escape. On the other hand, you know, I'd like to say, oh, gee, I, I wish everyone could escape. Oh, if everybody could be happy, that would be very nice. That's just not the way it works here. And one of the things we do have to deal with is the reality of our situation. It's just not the way it works here under 48 orders of law. It's easy to imagine that it could be some other way. It's easy to talk about it being some other way. It's easy to have whole groups of people who can get together and form nonprofit organizations and collect millions and millions of dollars that never change a thing, that just talk about it and work at it and spin their wheels, but never change anything. It's easy to do that because imagination satisfies every center. It fulfills us. Imagination fulfills us. And if that imagination doesn't, well, we'll get another imagination that will. As we are, impressions come through the door and they mechanically, like ants following a trail, go to fixed mental attitudes. 
And what that does is it forces us into the same old reactions that we have always had. And we get to be consistent. We get to stay the same. We prize consistency. We want people to be consistent. We want to be consistent. And we imagine that we are consistent. When the truth is, we're just mechanical. And that's not really consistent because if something else happens, then we'll have a different reaction. If we justify our reactions, if we justify our attitudes, if we justify our beliefs, we effectively block the work from giving us the force that's needed to transform. It's like having the bouncer at the door where impressions are coming in. But then you go and you stand at the door and you see some people coming in who you recognize and you like, some impressions coming in that you like. And the bouncer wants to check them and send them here, but there. But you like them, so you say, no, no, come in, come in. And you just let them get right by the bouncer, right by the security team. Sound familiar? This is what we do. That's our self-justification of our reactions, attitudes, beliefs. Then we go, oh, no, no, that's okay. This one's okay. Let that one in. Because we have this affinity for it or because we enjoy the alcohol that it brings in with it or, or because we need the gun that it has in its waistband. You see, gosh, I hope people aren't taking this literally. I'm speaking figuratively to try and paint a picture so that we can get, a, get an idea of what our internal world is like. As the work says repeatedly, we can be transformed by learning to think in a new way, apart from our fixed, rigid, acquired attitudes. How are we going to get apart from those fixed, rigid, acquired attitudes? We can't even see them. So how are we going to separate from them so that we can begin to think in a new way? The mind is infested with these fixed attitudes, just as the emotional center is infested with negative emotions. The work says try not to express negative emotions. And, of course, you can't not express negative emotions. You either express them verbally, you express them in body language, or you express them mentally or emotionally. By entertaining them, you are expressing them, no matter how they manifest. If they manifest physically, if they manifest in sickness, if they manifest in thought forms that go out and cling to other, that collect other like-minded thought forms and then create a cloud over the city or whatever. It doesn't matter how they manifest. They are manifesting. If you do not see their manifestation, all that means is that you are unaware. It doesn't mean that they're not manifesting. It means that you're not aware. How could you say that? Well, it's easy. Just take the first premise of the work. You don't know anything because you're asleep. And if you don't know anything because you're asleep, then anything that you think you know, you're imagining. That's a difficult thing to accept. But we can accept it intellectually for the moment. We can accept that right now intellectually. We can say, okay, I can accept that. I've caught myself asleep a number of times. There's a very strong possibility that I am asleep and I don't know everything I think I know. But we're not willing to say, I'm always asleep and I don't know anything. But the more you observe yourself, the more inclined you'll be to be able to say that. Because the more you observe yourself, the more you see, you will see that you're always asleep and you don't know anything. And then we begin to accept our nothingness. We begin to accept our position in the great ray. And when we begin to do that, then the work can help us. Then the ideas can help us. Then something higher from outside of our little system, from outside of our closed system, can reach in and give us a lift, give us a boost, show us the light, point us in the right direction. Until then, it's pretty hopeless. We're like a dog chasing our tail. Metanoia, erroneously translated repent in the Bible, is really the awakening of the emotional center. Meta means to think. Noia, no mind or outside mind. Metanoia, to think outside the mind. What mind? Well, your ordinary mind. The mind that you call I. You realize that you call your body my body. You think you are your body. 
but then your mind is in your body. We think it's in our brain, so we say, well, I to that. What this work talks about, what all esoteric teachings talk about, is metanoia, this change. It's a change of heart, actually. Conversion, they call it in Christianity and a lot of other religions, they call it conversion because there's no other way to say it. They don't know what to say. Transformation, spiritual transformation, conversion. It doesn't matter what you call it. It's something that is not ordinary to the mind, the mind that we think we are, the mind that I call I, imaginary I. The emotional center will never awaken as long as ordinary mind imprisons it. Ordinary mind encases the emotional center and blocks anything from getting into it except what it allows into it. And the only thing that it really allows into it is more negative emotions. But the part of the emotional center that isn't sick, that part we don't have access to because we only visit the sick part. The only room we ever go in in the emotional center is the sick room where all the negative emotions are. And in that sick room, there's no room for positive emotions. Only the sick are there. They're all quarantined to that room. Gee, I kind of like this. This is not going the way I thought it was going to go, but I like the direction that it's taken. How sad this ordinary mind is, the one that we're stuck in. It has no real ideas of its own, which can provide daily meaning. The ordinary mind can't provide daily meaning. In order to get any kind of meaning, it's got to go do something. It's got to go get something. It can't provide any meaning for you. All the meaning of life is provided by life. The ordinary mind is, a, is this outpicturing of life, really. So it just tells you that what you need to be happy is out there in life. And so the ordinary mind keeps us running out through the five senses, trying to get things sorted out and in order and fixed and get enough. And it never works. But we imagine that it does work, and we believe in the ordinary mind, and we believe in what it says, so we think that it does work. We just have to adjust a few things, get some more money, get somebody who really loves us, get somebody who we really love, get something, get something, get something. But it's always something else we've got to add to ourselves. This ordinary mind is nothing but blind attitudes, prejudices, rigid opinions, which leave us little more than walking dead. We're people who are moved through life by life. We are like the pieces on the Monopoly board. Someone else rolls the dice, and then if you're the battleship or Scotty Dog or the top hat, something comes along and moves you so many squares, and you don't know why. All you know is the areas you pass through, and then you land on this place or that place. And maybe you own that place, so it's okay. But maybe you don't own that place, and you have to pay rent. Or maybe you end up in the hospital, or maybe you go to jail, or maybe whatever. It just depends on what square you land on. That's what our life is like when we live in the ordinary mind. It's like somebody else is rolling the dice, somebody else is moving the piece, we just land where we land, we take what we get, and then we whine about it and try and fix it. And we have no power to get off the square we're on. But we pray, or we rant, or we rave, or we do whatever we do, or we build a fire and send smoke signals, or whatever it is we do. And then our turn comes again, and the dice are rolled, and the hand comes and moves us. And we say, oh, see, it worked. All my, all my smoke signals work. Or we say, see, my ranting and raving worked. But it didn't. But we don't know that. The work says that we were born to understand, but we must make effort to create the force of understanding in ourselves. Life won't do it to us. In fact, it's just the opposite. What life will do to us is keep us from understanding. What life will do to us is keep us moving and keep us searching in life for an answer that life doesn't have. Because life is intelligent. Yes, I know. Life is intelligent. Think of this. Life is intelligent. 
There's an intelligence in plants. It took us a long time to figure out how to photosynthesize. Plants do it naturally. There's intelligence in bees. They go and they do this little dance and tell the other bees in the hive where the honey is, where the nectar is, where the flowers are. And there's intelligence in all of these things. So there's intelligence in life. Life is intelligent and life has a purpose for you. But life's intelligent purpose for you serves life. It doesn't serve you. It serves life. And you are simply a cell in this organism that coats the planet that we call the film of organic life coating this globe. You are simply a cell in that. And life's idea for that cell is about the same as your idea for one cell in your body. You don't really care how many cells die in your body every day. How many do you wash down the drain when you shower? or wash your hands, or wash your face. Well, let me tell you, you wash away a lot of dead cells. And a lot of them are just falling off right now. So you don't really care about that cell. What you care is what are you going to have to eat later? Where are you going to go? What are you going to do? How can you be more comfortable? You have your own idea, and those cells are not that important to you. And that's the way life feels about you. It doesn't care about what you want. It has its own plan, and it's going that way. And whether you live or die is meaningless because you're just one cell. That's the good news. And that's the good news because life doesn't really care about you. You can escape. You can serve a higher purpose. You don't have to serve life's purpose. That's the foundation of this work. If we wish to awaken emotionally, we must work to bring to light some of these attitudes that infest our minds. I say work to bring it to light because it is work. We have to make an effort because we don't naturally want to do it. It's not something we just wake up in the morning and, oh, I think I'd like to work on finding what's crappy about me, what's dark about me, what's ugly about me. I think I'd like to do that today. No, we don't do that. It's just not the way we are. It takes effort. Only the light can cure us. If we can't see it, we have no chance of changing it. So we begin with the light of consciousness. You can bring a little more light into your consciousness so that you can see a little more about yourself. That's where we start. But what do we look for? And that's where this work comes in. The work says, well, why don't you look for negative emotions? Look for when you're feeling negative. Look for when you're having negative emotions. Well, the first thing we do is we realize that we have a couple of negative emotions, but it's other people who make us feel that way. And we look some more and we realize that some of the emotions that we have, then the work says, but all of our emotions are negative. We don't have any positive emotions. And then we object. So what they you don't know what you're talking about. Well, maybe they all have negative emotions, but I have some positive emotions. I love my kids. I love my wife. I love my job. Oh, well, that's great. So you never really discipline your kids. You never really argue with your wife. Oh, yeah, I do. And they're idiots. Right. So when they do it to you, you get negative. Right. Yeah, that, we'll accept that. So then, but I still love them. I see. But it can change to hate in a, in a second. Well, yes. Well, the work says that's not a real emotion. Work says any emotion that can change into its opposite is not a real emotion. That real love cannot change into hate. And we don't know anything about that, do we? Well, we can imagine that we do, but we don't really. What you, you come to the point where you realize, I don't know anything about that. Then our next thing is we are reticent to tell people we, we love them. And, of course, they get negative. So we go through that whole thing. And it's like, it's tough finding our way through all this. Because we swing from one end of the pendulum to the other. We go to this extreme and then that extreme. Well, first I love everybody and then I'm not going to tell anybody I love them because I don't really know what love is. And so then we start qualifying it. We say, well, I love you for, for whatever that's worth. What that means is, you know, you're not getting on my nerves right now. What I love you means is you make me feel good now. You know, you're making me feel good. Because it's still the same thing. It's still us putting it out there. 
not accepting that we're making ourselves do whatever it is we're doing. And we can't accept that because if we accepted that, we'd have to say, well, then why don't I make myself feel good all the time? Well, because you can't. Well, why can't I? Well, because these other people keep making me feel bad or else I would make myself feel good all the time. See, it's just catch 22. It's a circle. It keeps going round and round and round until we break that and get out of that. We're stuffed full of attitudes without room for even a wafer-thin mint. You remember that Monty Python thing where this big, huge guy is at the restaurant? They're bringing him course after course. He's eating and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the waiter, the maitre d' comes up and he says, Well, dessert? No, no, I couldn't possibly eat another thing. Well, how about a mint? No, no, I couldn't possibly. It's a very thin, wafer-thin mint. And, And the guy finally goes, Oh, okay. And he takes the mint and blows up. We're like that. We're stuffed full of attitudes without room for even a wafer-thin mint. Maurice Nicole said, you move about in life as a kind of stuffed idiot. I pulled that Nicole quote out because I know it would be much easier to accept from him than it would be from me because he's dead. So you could say whatever you want about him. But I include myself in this. You know, we move about in life like a stuffed idiot. And if you've seen that about yourself, it's kind of funny. If you haven't seen it about yourself, well, then it's kind of funny that other people are like that. Look at our social rituals. I mean, we have some pretty wild social rituals. Travel can give us a chance to become aware of different ways of doing things. This can shock us into awareness. Handshaking, social ritual, embracing, kissing. You know, you, know, you, you look at people in, in France who kiss on this side and this side. They never touch the person. They just do that noise. Think about that. What, where did that start? It started from somebody kissing some person. Where did that start? It started from embracing someone. Where did that start? It started from getting your enemy close so that they couldn't cut you down. And well, how come you kiss on both sides? Because you looked on both sides. You didn't just look on one side. Maybe he was left-handed and he had a weapon there. Where did that start? It started from us being tribal maniacs who, you know, all went around killing each other. Savages who went around raiding each other and killing each other because we didn't want to work, because we didn't want to find our own woman. We went and raided these guys over there, stole their food that they worked with and took their women. All self-interest, all the same thing. So you look at all these social rituals and where they came from. Why is it we bury people? Well, we bury people so they don't get up. That's why we bury people. We started putting rocks on them. You know, somebody died and it's like we, they wouldn't get up. And they got cold and then they started to stink. And so we said, okay, this one's done. So then we, started, we just piled rocks on them because we were afraid they'd get up and come and get us at night or, or do something else. So we piled rocks on them. Oh, we like to say, oh, we, we just wanted to keep the animals from eating them. We didn't care. We only cared about ourselves. Now, these are the truths about us. And, you know, this is why people who study anthropology, people who study mankind, people who have an idea of what we are really like, they throw religion out as hogwash because religion says all this other stuff and it won't acknowledge the truth of our nature. You know, it acknowledges the truth of our nature, but you have to say it a certain way. It's the sinful nature. Well, what about it's just the machine? What about it's just false personality? What if it's the sinful nature is acquired? Oh, no, you were born with it. Fine, whatever. All they want to do is argue. Either side, all they want to do is argue. Wouldn't you rather understand? Wouldn't it be better to create the force of understanding in yourself so that you didn't have to argue, so that you could see both sides, so that you could see both sides are right, both sides are are true, they just have to be taken in their own light? Just like French is not wrong in Spain and Spanish is not wrong in France. They're just different languages. That's all. Wouldn't it be great to understand both? So that way, no matter what they said, you would understand them. Yes, that would be great. And that's the force of understanding. And that's what we're trying to create in ourselves. These shocks to our awareness are no replacement for self-shocking. Don't allow yourself to live life unchallenged. You've got to constantly challenge yourself. 
challenge your ideas, challenge your words, challenge your actions, challenge your feelings, challenge them, challenge them at the door where the security guards are, challenge everything that comes through that door, challenge everything, even if you recognize it, challenge it, examine it, search it out in the light of consciousness. That's what these work ideas are doing at the door of the mind where incoming impressions enter. That's their job. Let them do their job. Help them to do their job by protecting them from the little eyes that would shoo them away. Ignorance of ourselves must be slowly diminished through long, calm, uncritical self-observation. No negativity, no justifying. When you observe yourself, no negativity. Oh God, this is so hopeless. No negativity. Well, I'm just feeling hopeless now. I don't always feel hopeless. No justifying. No negativity, no justifying. Those are two of the things you've got to have if you're going to approach observation, self-observation properly. This can begin to make us conscious to our ridiculous, unchallenged attitudes about almost everything. I don't care what it is. You've got an opinion about it. And that comes from rigid, fixed attitudes. Your opinion's going to change. Right. That's happened a lot in your life, hasn't it? Like twice. It changed, then it changed back to what it was. <laughs> well, I thought you were a good person, but now I see you're a jerk just like I knew you were. That's what we call change. Entertain daily a powerful work idea. Pick an idea. I'm not one. I'm asleep. I'm always negative. Pick an idea and entertain it for a day. Court it for a day. Socialize with it for a day. Travel with it for a day. Make it your friend, your companion for a day. Here's a good one. Ask yourself why you blame someone else. Ask yourself why you blame someone else. We think quite simply, the other person can do. The other person can be different. What about you? When we really begin to work on ourselves, we find that we cannot do. When we just talk about the work, when we just read about the work, and we just listen to it, we don't find much of anything. But when we actually begin to work on ourselves, one of the first things we find is we can't do. We can't not express negative emotions. We can't even recognize negative emotions for what they are. We are still calling some of our negative emotions good things, positive things. Well, I enjoy them. Why can't I have them? Why then have a grievance against another? We make internal accounts all day long against each other. That's what we do. If you can't do, and if they can't do, why have a grievance against other people? Why have a grievance against someone who can't do? Why have a grievance against this guy who can't do anything other than stand up and prophesy this idiocy? Why have a grievance against him? He can't do anything other than that. Well, I'll tell you why to have a grievance against him. Because I can't do anything other than have a grievance against him. Because I can't do either. I have a fixed attitude. I have a rigid fixed attitude. And it makes me do that. And it's going to make me do that every time a guy like that stands up and says anything like that. That's how I'm going to react. Because I have a fixed attitude. And I'm going to blame him. Because I think he can do. And be different like I am. Because I used to have that attitude. But now I don't have that attitude. Now I have this attitude instead. That hates that attitude in you. So we have a grievance and an account with another person. The space becomes foul with this thick, unpleasant spiritual stench that surrounds us, that we carry with us. Like, is it Charlie Brown, where they have the pig pen who's got that little cloud of dust or dirt or something everywhere he goes? Yeah, we're like that. Only our cloud is spiritual. And we gather with people who also are under the same cloud. That's why you'll have churches with the same belief system and all the same people who go in and they all believe the same thing, think the same thing, do the same thing while they're there. Then they go out and do whatever they want to do. 
but all their attitudes are the same. These attitudes create this steeple. These attitudes create this building. These attitudes create this parking lot. These attitudes fill it up with cars. These attitudes make certain people come there. These attitudes sing certain songs. There's nothing to do with people. It's just attitudes moving people around, singing through them, working through them, doing through them. We must see we love ourselves and no one else. This is what this idea is about. Ask yourself why you blame someone else. You've got to see that you love yourself and no one else. Until you're willing to accept that idea, you're not going to have a chance of seeing that about yourself. You've got to at least challenge yourself with that possibility. Is it even possible that I love only myself? No one except myself. Is that even possible? Well, of course, everything inside of us is screaming, No! But... Those same screaming voices are the ones who have led you to every screw-up in your life. Are you ready to listen to something else? Are you ready to entertain something else from outside of the screaming mob inside of you? If not, then you're probably not ready for this work. If you have trouble with this idea that you love only yourself, no one else, try this on for size. It's always my fault if I am negative and never the other person's. It's always my fault if I'm negative and it's never the other person's fault. How's that sit with you? Not very well, does it? You can think of a couple examples when it's your fault, but you can think of a lot of other examples when it's their fault too. Does this idea have the power to transform you? Does it start you thinking in a new way? If I'm negative, it's my fault. It's always my fault, and it's never anyone else's fault. What if somebody else is negative? Is that my fault? Yes, it's my fault. Is it their fault? Yes, it's their fault. But that does not exonerate me. If I am negative, it's my fault. Well, but you said if somebody else is negative, it's your fault. Yeah, I did say that. Well, explain that. No, that's not for everybody. That's only for people who can bear that. And it can't be explained. Either you know that or you don't know that. If you don't know that, then there's nothing to talk about. If you know that, then there's nothing to talk about. Remember to start to think in a new way is the beginning of self-transformation. Just the beginning of self-transformation. To realize you're to blame, that it's your fault if you're negative and not the other person's, is to reverse yourself. Can you see what a huge reversal this would be for you? To always recognize, if I'm negative, it's my fault. I'm to blame. I did this. But we can't do that, can we? We can't really do that because we have all of these fixed attitudes, justifications. We have all these reasons, all these beliefs that other people made us the way we are. It's always my fault if I am negative and never the other person's. All transformation has to do with the reversal in yourself, seeing everything the other way around. As we are, we see everything upside down, backwards and inside out. The tender nerve behind the bull's eye is that it is your fault if you're negative. So here's the idea that I would like to have you entertain for at least a day. If I'm negative, it's my fault. It's no one else's fault. Problem with us is then what we do is we start to call our negative emotions something else and avoid accepting responsibility for our negativity. We just call it something else. I'm not negative. So that's the idea I'd like you to entertain. See if it doesn't start you thinking in a new way. See if it doesn't hold locked inside of it. If you'll squeeze it close enough, tight enough to yourself, if you'll embrace it to yourself, hold it close. See if it doesn't have the power to transform you in some way. Often the practical application of these ideas sounds like it's going to be easy. The ideas sound great. When we actually run into a situation or person who's being a little more difficult than we'd like, we find it's not as easy as we thought it was going to be. If you've hit a snag with some aspect of this work and its practical application in your everyday life, 
I invite you to write James at solidrockvista.com. Sometimes a fresh perspective is all it takes to get us back on the right track.